In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. As we close out the Epiphany season, we are at this point of no return. Think of it like this, the the slow climb of a roller coaster. Whenever you get to the top, you see some incredible things if you're able to uh, compose yourself for a brief second. You look out and you're able to see things that you haven't seen before. You're able to see a new perspective. And the epiphany season is kind of like that slow climb. And so today is that apex as we get one last glimpse of the divine majesty of the Son of God before our descent. And for Jesus, that descent is going to be the journey to Calvary, that holy mountain where he would give his life for the sins of the world. But for us, it will be that season of Lent as we are once again made aware of our need for grace and as we are called to take up our crosses and follow our Lord through fasting and through repentance. But lest we think it's all doom and gloom, like the disciples likely did, uh, consider today the gospel lesson, which serves as a preview for Easter. It serves as a preview to know where this is all headed. This is a glimpse of glory that is going to lead to suffering that inevitably will lead to glory in its fullness. There will be suffering and death. That's true. But we need not fear. We need not fear the suffering and the inevitable death that comes upon all of us. Why? Because of what Jesus shows us here today. We can join Jesus on this holy mountain and with the eyes of faith we can behold him and we can see what awaits those who are bound to him. Jesus trudged up that mountain, that rocky terrain, followed by Peter, James, and John. Imagine what Peter might have been thinking. Six days had passed, so the sting of humiliation had likely dulled somewhat, but it probably never dissipated completely. He had been called Satan by his Lord. He took Jesus aside to rebuke him. Jesus was talking about the cross and suffering, Peter brings him aside and says, Lord, this will never happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. How humiliating. Maybe Peter was thinking on his journey up the mountain, maybe he was thinking about all the other mistakes that the other disciples were making. It wasn't unlike him to focus on the problems of others to cope with his own. Look at John chapter 20, whenever he's asking about the disciple John. Jesus, what about this guy? It's not unlike him. Peter could be petty, but Peter was also honest. And he was honest enough to eventually share what he saw in his epistle on this mountain. That's what we heard from today. When they got to the top... Jesus prayed, according to Luke's account. And the disciples were heavy with sleep, something that would come somewhat, something that would become somewhat of a habit with them in Jesus' prayer services. They would fall asleep. Now, when they awoke, they saw Jesus standing there with two figures. Beams of brilliant light 
streaming from their master's face, his clothing all white, a similar vision to what the Apostle John saw on the island of Patmos in the book of Revelation. Now, to these Jewish men who are familiar with the Jewish scriptures, this was the type of thing that only happened when God was around. And whenever he revealed himself to to people like Moses and Elijah on the holy mountain. Imagine their shock and awe when they saw who Jesus was talking to. There they were, these two great prophets, these absolute heavyweights in the Jewish world. Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus in this holy conversation. But for all their weight, for all the import and the pomp and circumstance of their presence, they paled in comparison to what the disciples were seeing in Jesus. Heavenly glory was emanating from Jesus. Brilliant streams of light. Heavenly glory from Jesus. And Peter, as he usually does, had some words to share. He's moved by the moment. He said, Lord, it is good that we are here. And he offered to build them three tents. One for Jesus one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter would be interrupted, but we'll get there. Let's try to make some sense of this so far. Six days prior to this, as I already mentioned, you had Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ. You had Jesus' talk of suffering and dying. You had Peter trying to rebuke Jesus, only to have Jesus call him Satan. You had Jesus calling his disciples to take up their crosses. And now here is Jesus bringing them up this holy mountain to show them something that is connected to and anticipated in suffering and death. And that is the divine glory. In other words, here is the light of the world showing his disciples exactly who he is and how this light of the world will now go and face down the darkness of Satan, sin, and death by swallowing them up on a holy mountain, Calvary. We have divine glory emanating from Jesus, not reflected from his face, as was the case with Moses. We have divine glory originating from Jesus. We have here Jesus manifesting his divine nature through the human nature. Whenever Jesus became incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary, it meant that the eternal divine Son of God took human nature to himself. So in this person, Jesus, we have one who is both fully God, fully divine, and fully human. These two natures of Jesus do not mix into something else. All right? Nor are these two natures separate from one another. If you separate the two natures, you end up with two Christs. 
So this is the mystery of the incarnation that we're seeing here. What you have is the divine nature manifest through the human nature. I know that that's high and lofty, but here's one way to think about it. All right? Whenever you take a piece of iron and you stick it in a fire and it begins to glow, you have two unique substances working together in unison. The fire does not become the iron. The iron does not become the fire. But the fire manifests itself through the iron. So it is that Jesus' divinity shines forth through the humanity. It's why, for example, here's how this plays out practically in the life of Jesus. It's why, for example, he can walk on water with his human body. It's why he can walk through walls upon his resurrection and say, peace be with you. It's why he is able to be bodily present in the Lord's Supper, because the humanity shines forth, excuse me, the divinity shines forth through the humanity. Why is this important for us? Well, because Jesus is showing us here who he is and what he came to do. You see, human nature is fallen. It's corrupted by sin. It's turned away from God. We are by nature sinful and unclean. You and I cannot have any kind of communion, any kind of fellowship or relationship with our Creator because of this fallen condition. That is, unless God does something about it. And in the person of Jesus, we have the divine nature united to the human nature so that our nature would be healed by his life-giving death and his resurrection. God is reconciled to us in Jesus just as the divinity is always united to the humanity in this one person. That's how sure the reconciliation of God is. And the transfiguration shows you that in Jesus, you have a glorious God who veiled that glory, a God who took on flesh to bleed and die for you. That's what you're seeing in the transfiguration. Now, I'll get to Moses and Elijah in just a moment, but consider that Peter was still babbling on. Uh, Mark and Luke's account tell us that he did not know what he was saying. He was just saying stuff just to fill the silence, just to fill the air. He was trying to offer up these words that perhaps captured the glory of the moment, and God comes and mercifully interrupts him. Sometimes it's best not to say anything at all, right? But a bright cloud comes upon them, and a voice speaks from that cloud. It says, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. It's an almost exact repetition of what was said about Jesus at his baptism. And it's said here in answer to this unspoken question. What exactly are we seeing here? What in the world is going on? And leave it to God to answer that question. This is my beloved son. And the voice rang in their ears and it terrified them such that they fell to the ground and they would not look up. And at that point, Peter had no more words. There would be no more offerings of empty phrases. There would be no more attempted rebukes of Jesus. 
There was no consideration from James and John as to their status in the kingdom of heaven. None of that. There was simply terror and awe at the voice of the Almighty. That same voice that spoke everything into existence. That same voice that causes the earth to melt. Psalm 46. And just when they thought they were about to die, which is usually the case in the scriptures, whenever people hear the voice of God, they felt a gentle touch and a calming word. Rise and have no fear. And when they pried their faces off the gravel, and whenever they managed to wipe the dirt from their eyes, they saw something completely normal. There was Jesus only. Moses and Elijah were gone. The cloud was gone. The divine radiance that blazed out through the face and the clothing of Jesus was gone. It was only Jesus as they had known him since the day he called them. Jesus trudged back down the rocky terrain and the three followed him. And Peter probably wasn't thinking about Jesus calling him Satan anymore. He was probably thinking about the first person that he was going to tell. Whenever he got down that hill, somebody needs to know about this. But then Jesus spoke up. Tell no one this vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. When Peter saw Jesus conversing with Moses and Elijah, as I already mentioned, both Luke and Mark's account say that he did not know what he was saying. And in the moment, he did not understand Jesus' connection there to Moses and Elijah. And so this cloud comes over them, and God the Father speaks from the cloud, identifying Jesus as his son, and that the disciples should listen to him. You see, Moses and Elijah disappear because everything that God was doing and saying in the Old Testament, including the law and the prophets, was coming to their fulfillment in this divine human. Jesus said it in the gospel. He said, the law and the prophets bear witness to me. You scribes and you Pharisees read the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but you fail to see that they testify of me. I ask our catechumens all the time, what is the Bible about? Jesus. We read a story about David and Goliath. I say, who is this story about? They say, Jesus. We read a story about Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. I say, who is this story about? They say, Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Moses wrote of Jesus. He wrote about a prophet who would be raised up from among God's people. And we see that Jesus is the greater Moses who will lead God's people to an even greater exodus through his death and resurrection. <clears throat> Elijah was the prophet whose ministry would give way to, to the end times uh, uh, the end times kingdom of God's fullest blessings and salvation. And here was Elijah to point to Jesus through whom those blessings would be won and lavished upon all of God's people. And they were right to be terrified in the presence of God. 
They were right to be terrified and to tremble at that voice that spoke from heaven. We would be too. And that's because outside of Jesus, God is terrifying. Apart from Jesus, we cannot know that God is reconciled to us and that our sins are not held against us. But through the gospel, we are forgiven and we are sure we are assured not of the terrifying judgment of God, but of the gentle touch and the comforting words of Jesus, which say to you, rise and have no fear. You have communion. You have fellowship. You have friendship with the God of the universe who spoke everything into existence, both visible and invisible, because of your own merits and works? No, because of this Son in whom the Father is well pleased, the Son to whom you listen. And why were Peter, James, and John not permitted to speak of the transfiguration until the resurrection? Well, for a couple of reasons. First, Jesus' time had not yet come, so he didn't want to cause a stir. But I would offer a more profound reason, and it's this. They could not fully understand what had just happened apart from the cross and the resurrection. Once they saw the resurrection, they would be able to reflect back on this event and say, oh, that's what was happening. That's what Jesus was doing. Because it's all connected, you see. On God's holy mountain where he gave the law on Sinai, that same law brought condemnation to all of mankind through sin. On this holy mountain of transfiguration, Jesus shows that he is, excuse me, <coughs> Jesus shows that he is something greater than Moses who came not only to fulfill the law, but to die in the place of sinners who have failed to be obedient to the law. And on the holy mountain of Calvary, he gives his life for the sins of the world, for yours and mine, setting us free from the curse of the law and imparting to us the promise of eternal life through his resurrection. And here and now, in this holy mountain, this mountain known as Zion, the church, God reigns and he enables his people, you and me, to partake of his glory in this hidden and mysterious way so that we are not consumed by God's judgment, but that we are brought into communion and fellowship with him through the divine son of God who has become one of us through his incarnation. And because you partake of Jesus, because you have been baptized into him, and because his life has been imparted to you, it means that your life is marked by his. And as Jesus descended from the mountain, his mind began to shift towards Jerusalem, towards Calvary. So at the end of today's service, we must come down the mountain and walk with Jesus as we both enter this crucible of life 
in all of its challenges and as we enter the season of Lent. But we do so unafraid. We are not afraid of suffering and death because we know from this revelation today that suffering and death can only serve to aid us in our own transfiguration, our own transformation. What do I mean by that? Suffering and death only serve to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Our Savior whose redeeming love we are never without and with whose glory we will always share. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.